This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hi, this is Benjamin from the UK true crime podcast, They Walk Among Us. Want to see something scary? Shudder is the ultimate streaming service for fans of horror, thrillers and the supernatural. Shudder offers an unbeatable selection from Hollywood favourites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films you won't find anywhere else. Explore the best collection of horror that pushes boundaries, showcases bold original storytelling and offers something new to watch every week. Available ad-free, on-demand and through the platforms you're already on. Shudder. So good it's scary. Sign up at Shudder.com. Wakey, wakey. That is one nasty cough, and it belongs to two-year-old Willow. And she's far from alone. It seems all the coughs and colds that took a holiday during the pandemic are making a comeback. Oh, big girl. Do you know what this is? It's a microphone for recording what we're saying. I'm just recording your cough because you've got a tickly cough, haven't you? Can I hold it? You can hold it, yeah. Do you want to tell us about your cough? What do you know about your cough? How does it feel? Better. It's better. Does it? Is it helpful when you drink some water? Would you like some water now? I think Willow is our youngest reporter here on the Inside Health podcast on BBC Sounds. But her mum, Lorna, she's been part of the team for ages. And both of us actually had our little ones give or take the same time. James, how are you? I'm okay. How are your kids? Taking I was like, can, can, can I have a chat? And it's like, well, we're, I'm on the way back from hospital, so no. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's sort of they Willow's life at the moment. She went in today and they're like, can we have a listen to your tummy? She like takes her own clothes off, lifts off, <laughs> turns around so they can listen on her back. She's She's got it all sorted, sadly. <laughs> I don't know about you. I've noticed that that mine went through most of the pandemic without getting ill at all. And then in the past couple of months, suddenly that weekly cold <laughs> coming back from nursery has hit again. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was sort of a dreamy winter, wasn't it? In that regard, not in lots of other regards. And yeah, compared to my elder, my four year old, who at this age was picking up every bug and it just seemed endless that first winter of them in nursery. Willow, who's two, had a really clear winter, no real coughs and colds that I can really remember happening. But, oh my goodness, March of this year, that all really changed for her and for us. What happened? So March of this year, she had her first episode of what they call viral wheeze. So she got a snotty nose, the usual sort of thing. But really quickly, that was a cough and then it was a really persistent cough. And then it was her kind of sucking in to be able to breathe one night. The ambulance rushed us off to A&E, really frightening because she's only two. And they had her on an oxygen mask. They had her really quickly with some oral steroids. And, you know, she was admitted. We spent three days in on the children's ward. And pretty much since then, every time she's got a cough or a cold, we've ended up in A&E. Uh, so Lorna, have you been in hospital almost constantly? We have been in, I think she's had four four stays in hospital now in the last three months. So we stay in a few days, we come out 
she's kind of at home for several days recuperating she goes back to nursery gets a bug that builds up for a week or so and then we're back in hospital again and then we've just done that on loop since March. And when you get to hospital what's it like in there? A&E is full of kids like her (laughs) that's my impression anyway so so when we arrive she's often very you know, very breathless. They very quickly put on an oxygen mask. And you can hear the doctors going from cubicle to cubicle, giving the same kind of talk about, you know, sucking in airways and small airways being easily blocked with mucus and that sort of thing. And then similarly, when we are admitted to the ward, again, it's all kids like her. I think it was our third admission when the very, very capable consultant came around and she said, I'm really sorry, midway through our consultation, I just need to consult the notes because I've got eight children who are two years old and have been admitted with viral wheeze. Eight on one children's ward. Really incredible. And when you chat to the doctors and nurses there, are they as surprised as you are? Yes, I think they're surprised by the timing. I think that the level, the number of kids coming in with these kind of respiratory conditions who are, who are this sort of age is not something that they would normally see in these summer months is the impression I get. You work in the same team that I do. We, we deal with kind of like medical and science stories and information all the time. Is, is something tingling in the back of your brain that something's going on here, something different? You've got to wonder, haven't you? I mean, there's a part of me that thinks it's just she didn't get them over winter and now she's got to get some bugs and we just happen to be with willow she's unlucky but there is a part of me that wonders you know they've had this year of being so separate from their peers and so it's and it's not just that they're not passing the bugs around but their worlds are so clean you know at her nursery they've stripped out all the soft toys they they anti-back all of the plastic, all of the surfaces, not just every evening, but like multiple times a day. Um, You go to any kind of cafe and previously there might have been a, you know, a stash of books for the kids to have a flick through. They've been removed. They just don't want to take the COVID risk. And there was that chunky period as well, wasn't there, Lorna, where there wasn't, nursery didn't even exist. Like the nursery just shut. Do you know, I blanked (laughs) it from my mind. That traumatic. It it, it was traumatic. (laughs) I could tell you a two and a four-year-old, well, one and a three at that time it, that was traumatic yeah oh boy so do you think there's something in the whole you know it changes form how it's described hygiene hypothesis exposure to good bacteria there's something in all of that that we've we've missed I guess that's what I wonder that's what I would really like to know is this something that um is just this this snapshot in our lives this moment in our lives where willow is unwell and we will quickly move on and forget about it or is this the sign that something about what she's been exposed to or not been exposed to in the last 12 to 18 months is going to fundamentally shape how her immune system functions going forwards and that is really worrying to me well let's see if we can find some answers for you Lorna I would love that so we've got a couple of things here to try to get to grips with we've got what's happening with all those bugs that normally make us sick and during the pandemic they've kind of disappeared And the other thing, whether the pandemic itself has given our immune systems a knock that we need to recover from. It has undoubtedly been an incredibly quiet year for infections. All those restrictions that slowed down the coronavirus have pretty much stomped on everything else. So let's head to the front line in hospital and see if there really has been a summer surge. Hello, my name is Dr Michelle Jacobs. I'm a consultant in paediatric and adult emergency medicine and I work at Watford General Hospital in Hertfordshire. So, Michelle, what are you seeing coming through the door? What are the big infections at the moment? We are seeing a lot of young children coming in with fever. 
which we are assuming is due to infections and turns out to be a lot of viral infections, simple viruses that most children will have been exposed to at some point during early childhood. They're all presenting now in a very sort of concentrated short space of time. Is something happening, Michelle, in terms of what's happened because of COVID that, you know, I, I know my, my kids, when they went to nursery, they came back with a cold every single week and that all kind of disappeared for a year of COVID. And are, are we now almost paying a price for that? Are we playing, you know, common cold catch up or something? Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what's going on. So you've had over a year of children not mixing with each other with babies who have never been exposed to these viruses and older children, their siblings who haven't been going to nursery and primary school and bringing the virus home with them and sharing it with the rest of the family as they do. So they they are naive in terms of their exposure to viruses. Um, Noroviruses going around my kids' nursery. And now I normally think of noroviruses like the winter vomiting bug. And I'm pretty certain it's July. Yeah, we haven't seen norovirus in particular in my hospital at the moment, but we are seeing winter in June or July, as it's been called, sort of winter in the summertime. So huge numbers of rhinovirus, parainfluenza virus, other viruses that just cause common cold, upper respiratory tract infection type symptoms, all the things that we often see in wintertime. Are any of those viruses particularly concerning because I I think of something like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which for some patients does require hospital treatment. RSV is the one that we are really worried about. That is the whole big concern at the moment because RSV is the virus that causes a lower respiratory tract infection in young children. So deep Um, in the lungs. Yes, deep in the lungs in babies, essentially, and certainly under two, if not under 18 months, called bronchiolitis. And we see a lot of that the whole winter through. And some of those babies can be really unwell. And especially if they've got pre-existing, predisposing reasons to be more unwell, like they were born prematurely and on, on oxygen after they were born and that sort of thing. So we are really worried because we had a year of no RSV. And looking at what's happening in other parts of the world, like in Western Australia uh, and other data from around the world, it shows that everything was has been delayed. And of course, Michelle, in places like Australia, it's not it's not the COVID virus, it's not coronavirus that means that RSV hasn't been around. It's all the measures we've put in place has had an impact on every disease. Yeah, so RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, and all the other viruses, they're around, they haven't disappeared. So it's it's a result of the, the social distancing and the lack of mixing and possibly the, the, the PPE and hygiene methods that, that people are using, which no children were getting or very few children were getting infected with it until they all started mixing again and their older siblings went back to school and nursery and that sort of thing. Other data from around the world shows that everything was has been delayed and the payback for us having a year off RSV, if you like, is that it's going to hit us very hard this year. More children are going to be presenting with it. There's going to be more demand on beds, especially paediatric intensive care beds. And so we're all being asked to put together surge plans to deal with this huge onslaught of RSV that is going to be coming, they reckon, from about mid-August and is going to last throughout the winter. So normally we would see bronchiolitis mainly at the end of the year, October, November, December time. But we're being asked to prepare for this from mid-August. How worried are you about that? Oh, really worried. Very, very worried. I mean, just it's just a perfect storm of difficulty ahead for the winter for paediatrics. Can the NHS cope with that? 
if you are having like a, a, a massive surge, two years worth all at once? Well, that that is why we are being asked now to put together surge plans, thinking about when the numbers start to go up, how we're going to cope with it, how we're going to redeploy staff and resources in order to cope with this huge surge of paediatric attendances. It's the reversal of what happened last year when paediatric staff went and helped on the adult side when there was a huge surge of of COVID patients presenting. We're doing the reverse now. We've started, and I gave this week uh, some teaching to adult nurses on recognition of the sick child. So we are looking to our adult colleagues um, to come and help in paediatrics this winter because the chances are that that's where the need is going to be. And so all of this is supposed to be being looked at in every trust now to make as well prepared as we can for what we know is coming. And we've seen it in other parts of the world. It's very weird, isn't it, Michelle? Because I think a lot of people listening will be seeing what's looking like close to the end of COVID in the UK and they can finally breathe the sigh of relief whereas for you it's a little bit more like the deep breath before the plunge. Absolutely yeah yeah I mean whilst all this was going on with COVID last year in paediatrics we were looking around saying where are all the children why are they not here and we did see some examples of children who came in really late but what we've got coming towards us now is not something we've, we've had before. Um, this might seem a really stupid question, but how do you know it's coming? We've got a lot of information from Public Health England who do modelling on incidents and numbers and patterns of, of infection. They've turned on their RSV monitoring programme early. They can track what's going on in, in different parts of the country. And they say that what's shown so far is that there is actually a real regional difference in what's happening in different parts of the UK, which is not usual for us. So, for example, the northwest of England has had a huge increase in, in RSV notifications, whereas we in London have not yet. But we will follow for sure. It's a matter of time, really. Michelle, are you going to come back later in the in a future episode of Inside Health and tell us how it's all going? I'd love to. Cool. Well, we'll speak to you again soon. OK, thank you. Right. So Dr. Michelle Jacobs has helped us crack the first part of Lorna's puzzle. There genuinely are more infections around for her daughter Willow to catch. But what about the other side of it? What about the cost of the pandemic on our immune systems? Has there been a price to pay for our sanitised year, that year without colds, without bumping into people, of hand gelling absolutely everything in sight? Well, I asked Tracy Hustle, who's a professor in immunology at the University of Manchester. That's a good question. And I think we've had a a different education for our immune system, but I don't think there'll be a big impact, even though it could be hypothesized that by isolating, we've decreased our exposures to organisms that are needed to keep our immune system pepped up. However, microorganisms that challenge our immune system are everywhere. They're on your family members. They're in the natural environment. And even past vaccines will benefit your immune system. So you evolve this system over time and it's not so fickle that it would change so quickly. So even Um, though we've been living isolated lives, in the grand scheme of the bugs that are everywhere, it's not that big a deal. In the grand scheme of the bugs that are everywhere since the day you were born, your immune system takes longer to develop than that. So this lockdown won't have affected it. I know Lorna was particularly concerned about that kind of very early exposure to to microorganisms and how that informs and helps educate the immune system and kind of like sets you up for life in a way. I mean, we we both have two-year-olds who didn't get to go to nursery, didn't get to see all the family members and friends that they would have seen due to all of the restrictions. Is there 
a particular concern about that age group, about the, the, the children of COVID? I think with two-year-olds, you're absolutely fine, but I can understand concern among, amongst people who have newborn babies. But you would be horrified to know how much of a bacterial and fungal load is actually encircling your house and in your carpets, on surfaces, in your siblings. And there's enough of a signal from those to to overcome the so- social isolation in young children. I love that, that the mental image of fungi circling oh, my house. Everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> and I can hear you saying that, Tracy, and I can imagine some people listening at home, that's sending a shiver down their spine, but you're saying that's a good thing, bacteria and fungi everywhere. They're a good thing because you need to set a tolerance level with your environment. You don't want to react to absolutely everything that you see. So these sort of friendly organisms that are in our immediate atmosphere, they actually educate us to tolerate them. And in that way, you then don't become allergic to things like house dust mites or pollen. And so your environment sets your inflammatory tone the one thing I'm, I'm wondering, listening to you, Tracy, is that there might be some people that might still be affected by this. So if you were forced to isolate and you, you had new kids and say you, you lived in the 17th floor of a tower block and it's not easy to you, you don't have a garden to go play in or something like that. And you just not life is very different and your exposure to all the microorganisms in the world could be very different to what it was before the pandemic. It could be, but the biggest education you get from bacteria is when you're born. If you have a natural birth, you encounter a lot of microorganisms on your way out, and that's part of the education experience. And just in terms of the number of infections that that I know that I personally am noticing. I know that's only an anecdote, but I'm noticing it in my children who are now back at nursery. Lorna's noticed the same thing. Is that flurry of infections just because they've, they've, those, they haven't caught those particular bugs over the past year and now they're just getting them all at once rather than there being some deficit in their immune system? Yes, it's about sort of interacting and the virus having different pots to jump into. Viruses like to sort of infect multiple hosts and by socially isolating, we've prevented that from happening. So now everyone's mixing again. We can can pass around all these other infections between ourselves. Is it a good thing? Yes, it's life. And it's we need to keep on top of the maturation of our of our pathogens and the way they're changing. And it's a way of keeping check on them, really. But is there an argument that we are living a life that is too clean. I I was reading the papers the other week about some advice that maybe, you know, you don't need to keep your house as clean as we are. And actually, if you are more targeted with your hygiene, focusing on things like your hands and some of the most common surfaces in your house, that would be better than trying to live in 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 a much cleaner environment. I mean, unless you live in a world where there are endemic pathogens that that can transmit, you know, from your hands to your respiratory tract, I, I, I think it's not that you can be too clean. It's just that you don't need to be perhaps so clean. So we we have antibacterial dishcloths, which are great for not making your dishcloth smell awful, but nobody ever died of a dirty dishcloth. So I I think everything, everything has to be a balance. And even washing your hands a lot, it will stop transmission of pathogenic viruses. Absolutely. But 
you know, in, in ordinary times, you don't need to do that all the time. Tracy, thanks so much for answering so many of those questions. But I, I also want to drag you into kind of like probably the, the biggest debate of our time is, is are we doing the right thing? There's all this talk of relaxing yeah. restrictions, 50,000 cases a day, 100,000 cases a day. Some people calling it a, a gamble. Where do you see it when you're thinking of it from an immunological perspective? I feel that we've done our best to vaccinate against the current coronavirus strain, particularly in those most susceptible. We cannot continue to be locked down. It's going to damage the economy. It's going to damage education of our children. We have to try and come out of this at some point. Obviously, if the hospitalisation rates start shooting up and people get severe disease, then they may lock down again, but we need to try. Professor Tracy Hustlebear. And I think in combination with Michelle Jacobs earlier, we've got a pretty good picture of what's going on. Infections that have been lying dormant during the pandemic are starting to make up for lost time. So I think we can all look forward to that, all those runny noses over the months to come. But also our immune systems should still be in tip-top shape and haven't got any lasting damage. That's the hope. Let's see if it puts Lorna's mind at ease. I think in terms of building a strong immune system, I'm really comforted to think that, you know, Willow's having these bugs now and that will sort of catch her up for the winter that she missed. And that's that is hugely comforting. But I I find the idea of a winter of lots and lots of RSV and a winter where there's huge pressure on paediatric beds really frightening. Willow needs a bed. Uh, on a really at the moment on a really regular basis I'm touching wood as I say this that hopefully by winter the medications will be sorted and we'll have got to the bottom of what's going on and she might not need that so regularly but there are lots of children out there who who have regular hospital admissions and it is really frightening to think that there'll be a pressure on beds and for Willow that there's going to be lots of RSV which is exactly the kind of thing that she would be likely to get badly and would lead to hospital admission for her. Well, Lorna, I hope it's a smooth few months for you and into winter. And I can't wait to see you in the flesh again because it has been well over a year. I know, that would be so lovely, wouldn't it? I've got a lot more lines on my face. I warn you. I've got a lot more grey hairs, so I I, I didn't think it could go greyer. So, (laughs) Oh, it can and it keeps on going. Um, If, like Lorna, you've got any questions that you want the Inside Health team to take a look at, then insidehealth at bbc.co.uk is the way to get in touch. Or you can give me a tweet at James T. Gallagher. But now it's time for Roving Rohin, as our friendly cardiologist Rohin Francis jogs around his park and ponders, is it possible to be too fit? You've heard all the jokes about gaining lockdown weight. But a large part of the population responded to the pandemic by doing way more of what I'm doing right now, exercising. During lockdown, outdoor exercise became many people's only chance to get out of the house. But is it possible to do too much exercise? Let me start by saying that exercise's multitude of benefits overwhelmingly outweigh its small potential harms. But the number of people doing what we would class as excessive exercise is increasing. I know that I ended up doing far more endurance exercise than normal during lockdown. But, I mean, you do expect a cardiologist to be doing plenty of cardio, right? However, recently I was undergoing a medical exam in which the doctor had to ask me to get up and walk around the room a little in order to get my heart rate above 45, because below that he'd have to refer me to... well, to myself. 
A normal heart rate is 60 to 100 beats a minute or so, and generally the lower the better. It's an independent predictor of life expectancy. But evidently there is a point where lower isn't better. After all, a heart rate of zero is not typically associated with a long life. So what's actually going on? Like any muscle, the heart gets bigger when we work it out. In endurance athletes, the chambers of the heart enlarge, the walls thicken a little, and the heart rate slows. It's not unheard of for Tour de France cyclists to have heart rates around 30 or even into the 20s. But we now know that there are some downsides when these changes, known as athlete's heart, occur. Microscopic scarring, or fibrosis, has been observed in the heart muscle. And excessive endurance exercise can also cause chronic inflammation, which can have multiple knock-on effects. After events like marathons, sensitive blood tests show that there's been some damage to heart cells, which is a transient phenomenon and normally nothing of concern until it becomes a regular occurrence. The main upshot of all this is the risk of an irregular heartbeat, atrial fibrillation, going up sharply. Atrial fibrillation is somewhere between two to seven times more common in endurance athletes than the general population, but not as common as in completely sedentary people. It can cause strokes and might require blood thinning medication. It affects about two to three percent of the UK population, but it's much more common as we get older. So these risks of excessive exercise are particularly relevant to those of us who are still trying to exercise like we're in our 20s, even though they're an ever more distant memory. Let me reiterate, exercise is amazing in many ways. Any amount of exercise is better than no exercise. I just worry about the proliferation of Iron Man and Woman, triathlon and ultramarathon type events that give the impression that the harder you push, the better. When we know that regular moderate exercise with adequate recovery offers practically all the benefits with almost no risk. Try mixing up your workout a bit, like interval training rather than prolonged periods of high exertion. I think it's fair to say that most of us are not exercising excessively, so this isn't permission for you all to just sit on the sofa. But, just to be on the safe side, I think I'll walk home at a leisurely pace and maybe listen to some Radio 4 in bed. You know, for health. A prescription for Radio 4. It's it's almost as though we pay him. Rohan Francis there. And for some extra insight, as we spoke to Professor Tracy Hustle, an immunologist earlier in the programme, we thought we'd get her take on what exercise does to the immune system. Exercise can do benefit or harm depending on how much metabolic, physiological and psychological stress you, you place on yourself. And obviously we're all at different points in that scale. So If you do exercise that is moderate for your level of fitness, you can actually decrease stress hormones, improve metabolism and improve immunity, including to vaccines. Unfortunately, too much high intensity exercise for an individual can make you susceptible to infection because you've decreased your immunity. And that can last for several hours after vigorous exercise, um, even, even as long as days. I remember a study a few years ago, and you can tell me whether it's perfect, brilliant or nonsense or whatever, uh, but it was like these quite elderly but physically fit cyclists. And, and I remember the headline was kind of like that they had the immune systems of a 20-year-old. Is that is that true? There is evidence that the fitter you are when you're older, the better your immune system is. And I, I think it's about getting out there and challenging the system a little bit, but not too much. Whereas if you become rather sedentary and 
watch TV all day as you age, then you're not, your immune system is not going to be in the state it should be. Understanding the human body can be incredibly complicated. How does regularly, say, going for a, a 5K run or whatever your form of exercises, I may have just revealed mine, um, how does mm. that change the inside of your body that makes your immune system better? We often view these systems as being separate when actually they are an integrated whole. So your mental health can affect the status of your immune system. Your nervous system interacts with the immune system. Metabolism interacts with your immune system. So if you affect one, you affect the other. Crikey. There's a lesson for us all, isn't there? Definitely. I'm definitely going to go do my 5K run at the weekend and follow up with Rohan Francis's advice of a prescription of BBC Radio 4. But that's it from this episode of Inside Health from me, James Gallagher, producers Geraldine Fitzgerald and Beth Eastwood and studio manager Sue Mayo. Until next time, do stay safe.